Get right with God. Judgment is coming. Certainly I'm not a prophet. Certainly this was the message that Hosea brought to the northern kingdom. And it was true. It did happen as the prophet foretold. Eventually the northern kingdom of Israel fell to Assyria. That generation did not repent. That generation went into captivity. And so did Judah. A couple hundred years later, Judah went the same way. God did not intend for that to happen, and God was the one who brought the judgment on them because of their refusal to repent and refusal to follow the Lord. And so Hosea brings this indictment, and in chapter 6 and 7, it's a mix of wonderful, incredible encouragement, but also some really sad, difficult verses to read, and uh, certainly did not come to downpour on your day, but there's some really hard things to read in light of the church, in light of Israel's history, that they did not want God. They, they only wanted the superficial religious thing, and as long as they did that, they, they seemed to be okay. That's all they wanted. But a true heartfelt repentance, a true change of behavior and direction, they weren't really interested. So let's read chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, and we'll get into it. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. Uh, bandage us. He will revive us after two days, and he will raise us up on the third day, that we may live before him. So let us now, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain, watering the earth. I'm going to read verse 4 real quick because this is God's response. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like the morning dew, in like the morning cloud, and like the dew which goes out, uh, which goes away early. Lord, slow down the time so that we can truly read and understand what this means. And Help us, Lord, not to just know it, but to know it in action and in truth, and we will be able to live it. Lord, thank you for Paul, that he wrote that all these things were written for us, for our learning and patience and understanding, that we would not repeat what they did, but also that we would have hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Hosea's message. Loud and clear, and we need to listen to it in stereo. Old Testament and New Testament gives us a very, very vivid picture of a God who loves his people so much that he's willing to discipline them when they have gone in a totally different direction than he intended, and a God who's even willing to bring ungodly nations to judge his own people for what they have done. And it took a long time. God doesn't, God doesn't judge immediately. God waits, and he waits, and he's very patient. And it took a while for this to happen. 722 B.C. is when the northern kingdom eventually fell away. It was roughly about 300 and some years since David. And it took a while from David to Solomon to Jeroboam to Rehoboam to get to this point. But God sent Hosea sort of a last, last messenger before this happened. He certainly lived during this time of the Assyrians coming in. We know that from chapter 1, he was there all the way up to the time of Hezekiah, king of Judah, from the south. 
and he keeps bringing up Judah because eventually Judah fell a couple hundred years later um, to warn them of what Israel was doing. He warned them that they were married to God. This was, this was Israel's calling. They were married to God. They were in a covenant marital relationship with God, but they had gone toward other idols, and they have become idolatrous, adulterous. That's what they became. They became like the wife of Hosea. She went, Gomer went into to other lovers. Well, Israel had other lovers, Baal and Ashtoreth, and all these other gods that they eventually, um, eventually worshipped, even um, Molech. And in Hosea's prophecy over the last five chapters that we've had, we see Hosea's immediate judgment that is coming, but ultimate goal of a future restoration of Israel. We can't lose sight of that. And Hosea is very good at doing that, and we can become very sidetracked by the fact that God did judge the nation. This generation did not repent. It's a sobering thought to think that even though they had the prophets and the warnings and on and on, they did not repent. So it's not all flowery and good and wonderful, but God always has a future goal. The ultimate goal is that he will bring them back, Israel back. Judah and Israel will come back together, and God will restore the fortunes of Israel and will bring them back as a nation, and that they will know the Lord, that they will come and know the Lord. But this is quite a bit time from the time of Hosea. But it could have been avoided. They had to repent, but they didn't. They did not want to repent. And it's the, the significant point in, in, in Hosea's uh, message it's not just only for the church, I'm sorry, for God in Israel, but it's also for the church. Because as we look ahead, Jesus has a bride. And it's the church, the church of Jesus Christ. And we learn a lot of the relationship between God and Israel. We learn a lot in our relationship to God as the body of Christ. Um, that Jesus warns the church, especially in the book of Revelation, they have gone after idols. The church of Thyatira. Church of Laodicea, most of the churches had something wrong, but especially those two. And it says to Laodicea that they, they actually, Jesus was outside the church now. And he was hoping to come in, hoping somebody lets him in. If anybody hears my voice and lets me in, I will have fellowship with them. And that's what God is looking for, a fellowship relationship with us, relationship with God. They were more interested in the external aspect of it, uh, especially when you get in trouble. And this is so much of human nature. You get in trouble, things are beginning to happen, so you automatically want to do the religious activity thing to sort of make you feel better about things. And, well, maybe this is what God wants. And God says, I don't want that. I really don't like that. Don't try to buy me off with your religious activity or your checkbook or your, um, you know, your time uh, you know, spent in the, in the temple. I really just want you to come back to me. I really just want you to come back in relationship with me. And they certainly had a, 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 a problem of idolatry of power because we have to go back to chapter 4, verse 14. I'm sorry, verse, um, uh, where is it? Verse 13, I'm sorry. Chapter 5, verse 13. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim, which is another word for the northern kingdom, Israel, they went to Assyria. When things began to go bad, and they didn't realize that the Lord is the one that they need to run to, when Assyria began to threaten them from the north and Egypt from the south, they went to Assyria first. 
and they said, hey, let's make a deal. And they tried to make a deal. And they did make a deal with King Jerob, but eventually King Jerob died, and the next king came in and sacked them. Never trust in horses, never trust in chariots, the psalmist said. Just trust in the Lord. And they had this idea of power. They needed reassurance, security from others rather than from God. And whenever we look to others, we're always going to get others' help, right? We're going to, if you seek for human help, that's all you're going to get, human help. It's going to be fickle. It's going to be short. It's going to be powerless. It can only do so much. But they should have looked to the Lord, but they didn't. Eventually, they went into captivity. And so the last days of what we call Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, and the last days of Judah in the book of Kings teaches us a lot about the last days in general, where one of the major signs of the last days will be people will leave the faith, people will not continue in the faith, people will not have the passion and love for God, people will be more concerned with their own lives, with their own, um, their own kingdom that they're building, their own business, their own life, much more concerned for that than they will do for the Lord. Uh, they'll be more interested in um, leisure and entertainment and having more things instead of really serving God. And eventually, the, the voice of Hosea became not only deafening, but dull. It, just, it was like a white noise. They just couldn't care or to hear anymore. So let's go to chapter 1 of verse 6. God says he was going to bring judgment. And this is the response. Now, this is very interesting because it sounds, it's an amazing statement, verses 1 through 3. And I don't want to destroy your, your view of the verse, because the verse is fantastic, verses 1 through 3. But it's in, it, it's, it's in a, this is Israel's response to God. This is what God wanted, but this is Israel's response to God. But it's not real. They say the right things, but they didn't mean it. They didn't mean it. And you can tell from verse 4 that God says, oh, Ephraim, oh, Judah. Um, what am I going to do with you? You know, it's like a brokenhearted father who just looks at their son who's out there on the streets, doesn't want to come home, just doesn't want to follow the Lord. It has a home, but just wants to be out there. And hears about the son's relationship issues and theft and immorality, and all they could say is, oh, oh, son. You can hear the brokenheartedness of God. But wait a minute, they just said the right things. They said, come, let us return to the Lord. Um, you can look at this from a sarcastic tone. Hey, okay, we'll come back to the Lord. I know this is bad. Things are happening. He's torn us, but he'll heal us. He's wounded us, but he'll bandage us. Um, he'll revive us after two days, and on the third day he will... Um, he will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So the idea here is this really happens if people repent. This is, what God, this is how God responds when people repent. Now, the, the crucial part of it is, are they really repenting? Do they really mean it? Or are they just saying it because they are in trouble? And there's a lot of people like that. In fact, that's normal, natural response from a lot of people. I'm in trouble, therefore I need God, or I need some help, and I, 
I, okay, I'm going to return to the Lord. I know this is bad, but God is merciful and he forgives, right? And, and so this is, okay, you get the tone. It's just a, a superficial return. It's not real because God says it's not real. Um, there's a returning, but before you return to the Lord, there has to be a turning, right? You can't have a return without a turn. It needs to be a teshuvah, what the Hebrews call teshuvah, repentance, return. Let us, let us return. Let us teshuvah to the Lord. They're saying the right things. Don't get me wrong. And this is why this is a beautiful verse. Because if they do this, God is committed to do that. What is God committed to do? To heal. Verse, six, uh, verse 1 of chapter 6. In the wounding, he will bandage them. Remember, God is like a lion in chapter 5. He's torn them. And it's like a lion with this prey. It's, it's actually killed them. But he's wounded them. But it says he will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day. And so it's the idea of the nation will be slain. God heals and God restores. The, uh, where he's stricken, where he's wounded, he will, he will restore. Um, but it's that amazing closeness of God. If somebody repents, that's how God will do, will do for them. That's how good the Lord is. He's brought you chastisement because you don't listen. It doesn't have to go this way. Remember, God waited a long time to get to this point for them to say the right things, for them to mean the right things. And it says that he will revive us after two days. So after being slain, the nation is going to revive, it says, after two days and be raised up on the third day. That, of course, sounds like the resurrection. It does exactly what the prophet is trying to say. Remember, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus died, was buried, and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Which scriptures was he referring to? All the Old Testament. Which scriptures refer to a resurrection after three days or on the third day? There's only one, this one. Jonah has the type. This one has the straightforward verse. On the third day, he will rise. Paul is alluding to Hosea in this chapter. So there's a, there's a beautiful picture of resurrection here. That those who have been dead, like Israel, will one day rise. That's true. But who has gone before Israel? Who has done this before Israel was their Messiah. The Messiah was stricken, not for himself, but for others. The Messiah was wounded. The Messiah was dead. And he revived them. He came alive after two days. On the third day, he was raised. It's, it's just trying to show us that there is a hope of resurrection. The ultimate hope is the resurrection of any trial, of anything that we go through. The resurrection is the ultimate point. And of course, the resurrection for believers and the resurrection of uh, those who are alive and remain, according to Thessalonians, is the rapture and the coming of the Lord. That would be the resurrection of believers at that time. But the goal is to live in his sight. Look what it says. Let us press on, I'm sorry, verse 2, that we may live before him. That's what God wanted from the beginning. This is a beautiful picture of those who separate themselves from sin and separate themselves to God. The ultimate picture of joining yourself to God and leaving sin behind. And sin is a poison 
that needs to be avoided at all costs. It's just that we don't like to avoid it at all costs. We kind of like sin. Uh, they like sin. And the idea here is that if sin was so bad, as, you, as we claim it is, then you should separate yourself from sin and treat it like something that you're not just allergic to, but it'll kill you. Hebrew says that we are to run the race with endurance, laying aside every weight, putting aside those weights, putting aside those things that slow us down, and to put aside anything that so easily besets us, so easily causes us to sin, the iniquity that causes us to sin. That's the book Hebrews asks. What is your weakness? What is your, what besets you? What really happens to you that causes you to sin? What is that? The book of Hebrews says that we all have it. We're to lay it aside. What could it be? The iniquity that nobody sees. And this is an important thing because nobody sees it sometimes. Iniquity is of the heart. By the time it gets to action, for you to miss the mark, like sin, it has already developed in your heart. Now, iniquity is really interesting because, uh, this picture of the resurrection, iniquity is so interesting because it does deal with things that are not very visible. They're underneath the surface. Um, what's one thing that we struggle with that nobody sees? What about pride? Hard to see. Very hard to see sometimes. It comes out eventually, but isn't it interesting that it could be right now there under the surface, that all it needs is the circumstance for it to come out in bright daylight? <laughs> Or lust. It could be lust for a person. It could be lust for power. It could be lust for things. It could be lust for positions. It could be lust for a lot of things. And it doesn't come out until the opportunity is given. It's there, but it's just waiting for the environment, the right atmosphere for it to come out. And it's bad when it comes out. And so the book of Hebrews says, deal with it at the root level. Don't deal with it when it comes out. Deal with your anger at the root level. Deal with your lust at the root level. You'll never have to worry about adultery if you deal with your lust. That's the way I look at it. If you deal with your lust, you won't have to worry about that because it's dealt with at the root level. Right? You don't have to worry about your anger if you deal with your wrath at the root level. It doesn't have to be explosive. Why? You're dealing with it at the root level. And so there's a lot of... <laughs> there's a lot of... Dealing with yourself. It's underneath the surface, the book of Hebrews says. Lay it aside. Put it away. Don't carry it with you. And so it constantly brings us before God in his light and say, Lord, what is my heart like? Only God can show us. But honestly looking at it and say, Lord, I just don't want this. I don't want this. I want to run this race clean and with endurance. And so it says to put it aside to separate ourselves from sin, to turn to God and turn away from what so easily besets us, what so easily gets to us. And to us, it could be lots of things. It could be different things for individuals. It could be uh, similarities. It could be lots of things. It's the iniquity of the heart, the iniquity of the heart, that which nobody sees and nobody may know, but would you still repent? Because God knows. See, that's, that's the difficulty, right? 
uh, in Israel only wanted to repent because things were going bad. Things were going bad and I needed to get back to God now. Where were you a couple years ago? A couple hundred years before that. What happened to them? Why did they go so far into idolatry? And remember, it carried more than that. You would say, well, God's so harsh to judge them that way. Well, it went beyond just the, the iniquity of the heart. They didn't have any control of that anymore. It went into murder and bloodshed and immorality and orgies and everything and anything that they wanted to do. And it says, um, verse 3, So let us press on to know the Lord. He's going forth as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain, watering the earth. Remember the idea of know, the knowledge of God is an important theme throughout the book of Hosea. The knowledge of God is not just knowing about God or knowing uh, doctrine or knowing scriptures. That's part of it. The knowledge of God and what the prophet meant was fellowship with God. Fellowship with God. That's knowing, excuse me, knowing God. The word ya'ad, ya'ad, is to know God as intimately as a wife and a husband and all aspects of a marriage will know each other. Because it, it is more than just a physical union, more than just a mental activity, it is a spiritual activity. All that is know. I know God in my mental capacity. I can read the Bible. I can understand doctrine. Uh, I can know uh, if you're married in a sexual way, your, your spouse. But do I commune with God in fellowship? And that's what, the, that's what Hosea is meaning. You know the scriptures. You know that from little, from little kids, they've been brought up in the knowledge of the Torah, knowledge of the, uh, of the prophets, well, knowledge of the, 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 the books of like Joshua and David. They knew the kings were good, and some of them, uh, like Solomon, had gone astray. And they didn't know, but they didn't know God. Let us know this intimate knowledge. Remember what Paul said? Oh, that I may know Jesus, Philippians 3, that I may know him. Well, he's been saved for a while now. He's been an apostle, planting churches, serving God, suffering for the Lord. And he still wanted to know Jesus. You see the point there. As close as he was, he still wanted to know. Right? He said that I may know him, right? The fellowship of his suffering, right? The power of the resurrection in his life, and that he would press on and continue with the higher calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's that's knowledge of God. That's to know God. And so I would ask you, do you want to know God? Do you, are you in pursuit of, of God and the knowledge of him? May you go in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus. It's another way of saying that. More than a just mental capacity. And, and we talked about this quite a length before. It's, you know, some churches are very good about the mental aspect of it, learning doctrine and learning scriptures. It's very good. Uh, and some churches are very good about the expression and the, and the passion, and, uh, but that's where they end. It, it's like a two polar opposites, and you can say, well, I could go to this church that has the mental aspect of it because I can learn a lot, and I can go to this church that has all the bells and whistles, but what about coming together? It's not and or, right? It's, it's both, right? It's, it's not or, it's both, and that's knowledge of God, and that's what we strive uh, passion, love, fervency, desire, willingness, obedience, but the knowledge of God, the mental capacity, knowing the scriptures. But they definitely had a failure of leadership, and this is where it gets into 
Um, well, let's finish this. Verse 3. He's going forth as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain, watering the earth. Um, oftentimes in the Old Testament, you see these pictures of rain and water coming in, and it's always typological of fellowship with God. When they were in good standing with God, the rain will come, the early rain and the latter rain. When Jesus came to them in the New Testament, it says, I am the fountain of living water. He was going to give them water. He was going to give them the Holy Spirit, says John chapter 7. And he was going to give them the, the living water, which is the Holy Spirit. The rain that comes down, like in Isaiah 42, the rain that comes down, is, it's, it's God's Spirit refreshing individuals, refreshing the nation. And rain was always looked upon as a blessing. But this specifically is talking about that if they repent, certainly as the dawn comes, God's going to be with us. And he's going to give us rain. And it's going to water the earth. And it's going to be magnificent. It's a wonderful thing if they meant it. If they meant it. And remember, this is a sarcastic, superficial wanting to get right with God, which you see it, you know, hopefully not within yourself. You see it among other, uh, among other people who have this, you know, something's wrong, but I need God. And so they, they, I'm going to be committed to God. I'm going to be faithful to God. And it dies out very, very quickly. So verse 4 says, this is God. What shall I do with you, Ephraim? What shall I do with you, Judah? Um, over the next few verses, you feel the frustration of God. Over the leadership who had led the people astray. And remember, we can't put the leadership aspect on the nation like our nation. Can't put it on the administration. Can't put it on the president. The leadership aspect in a New Testament sense is the church and the leadership of the church, not the government. You can certainly learn from it, but it applies first to the church. The failure of the leadership. What am I going to do with you, Ephraim or Judah? The frustration of God. For your loyalty is like the morning cloud, like the marine layer. Your loyalty goes as far as that. You drive out toward Orange County here, and it's nice. It's cool weather. By 11 o'clock, gone. Where'd it go? You know. I've woken up here, and I've seen the mountains. It's beautiful, you know, little fog area, nice. Kind of makes you want to go for a walk. It's cold, and, but then it's gone. It says, your faithfulness to me, Israel, is like that. It comes very, very quickly. It, it goes very, very quickly. It doesn't last. And, um, you know, it, it kind of reminded me of this. Uh, I've seen documentaries. Uh, Israel reminded me of these documentaries where um, these documentaries of 30s and 40s, we had these Jewish gangsters and the Italian gangsters, right, who total criminals. I mean, big-time criminals, murderers, uh, money laundering, drugs, whatever. They did the worst. And they go into court, and they got this big old cross. You know, the Italian gangsters, big old cross. And, and the Jewish gangsters, got this, the kippah. All of a sudden, they're Jewish. All of a sudden, they're very religious. And they go into court, and they're, oh, they're so pious. They go... Man, I feel bad now for them. Man, that evil judge is going to judge them now because of, you know, look how good they look. And so, so reverent toward God. And, you know, the bigger the cross, the bigger the criminal, it's my thing, right? The bigger the Bible, the bigger the criminal, right? Trying to hide some guilt. That's why I've never, you know, when Clinton was president, he came out of that big old Bible. I mean, he's hiding something. No offense to that. But I, it just, it's just the way I think. And you got these Jewish guys with the keep on, and they're just like, 
guilty. The judge knew these guys were absolutely guilty. So Israel's like that. They did, oh, let us return to the Lord. Where's my keeper? I got to go back, my prayer shawl. Okay, we're all religious now. God says, I don't buy it. Your loyalty is less the dew. Um, your loyalty is like the morning cloud, like the dew. Verse 5, therefore I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. What God is saying is, I have sent you the prophets. Amos preached before this to the nation of Israel. They didn't change. The next book will be Amos that we teach here, and it's, a, it's an indictment against Israel. They didn't change. He preached for a while. Nothing changed. And they're, basically, the nation of Israel is so fickle. It's, it's, a, it's a wavering thing. Your, you could say your love's not consistent, Israel. That's what God's saying. Your love's not consistent. You're so inconsistent in the way you approach me. Um, your apostasy, your immorality, you don't have a capacity to love me. And this is so true, and this is why this, the, the generation was so lost, is that it is true in a social sense. People that have, ve have been very immoral and, and very promiscuous in their lives, they have a very difficult time with loyalty, very difficult time with relationships, because they don't know how. They don't know how to love. All they know is, this is the way you love. It's a, it's a physical union, and that's what it is. It has nothing to do with anything. And so Israel had so steeped into sin, God's saying, you don't have the capacity to love me. And you know what? It's true. Marriages struggle. If, if, if the couples have been promiscuous, if the couples have been uh, very moral in their lives, even after you know, they get saved, it's, they still struggle because the loyalty, it's not there. They, they lack that intimacy. They can't get close to the person because they feel they're going to get hurt again. And by God's grace, yes, God can do anything. God's grace, they've overcome that. I know wonderful couples that live for the Lord that have struggled with this, but it's something they got to work at. And God says, you've been so immoral, you don't know how to love me. You don't know how to love me. And I've sent the prophets, and they've judged you. They've actually slain you by my words. The book of Judges tells us a very tragic history of Israel, seven cycles of Israel's history. They repent. They get right with God, they live free for a while, and then they start sinning again and sinning again, and God judges them, brings a redeemer, a judge, and then the cycle starts all over again. And this is exactly what that is. Now, it's interesting, talk to Jewish people today. They fast on Tish Bayab, which is the ninth of Av, which is the destruction of the temple. They fast. And you ask a Jewish person, why are you fasting? You know what they say? The temple was destroyed. But what about the sins? Why aren't you fasting about your sins or the sins of the people, what they've done? They, they, their capacity to fast today is based on what they've lost. And see, people mourn for loss. You know, even today, uh, most people would repent because they lost something. Not because of what they did, because of what they lost. Man, I lost my job. Oh, terrible. What'd you do? Man, I, you know, I, I'm stealing money or whatever. And, uh, but I lost my job, and they feel terrible about it. Well, do you feel terrible that you actually were doing that? It's only the lost. The loss is only they care about. In Zechariah 7, the Lord says, ask the question to, uh, to Israel, did you fast for me? I know you're fasting, Zechariah 7, but did you fast for me? People were sad because the temple, they had lost the temple. It says, I took away your temple. 
but you never fasted because of me. See, Israel always was repentant because of what they lost. And people still do that today. <laughs> I lost this, therefore I need to turn back to God. But I don't, turn, you know, I don't turn back because I need to be with God. I miss God. I, I don't have fellowship with God. I need to turn from that. It only happens when we lose something. So it says in verse 6 now, and this is a beautiful verse because he's going to deal with the corruption of worship. The corruption of worship. These are the four themes in, in, um, in Hosea. The corruption of worship. They thought that if they did the right things through the sacrificial system, that they will be all right with God. And they found out that verse 6 was here. And it says, For I delight in loyalty, that is hesed, right? Faithfulness, rather than sacrifice. And in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now, Jesus quoted this twice. He told them, go learn what this means. That he delights not in sacrifices, and the sacrifices here were the, the, the Levitical sacrifice, the temple sacrifice. I don't delight in that. I delight in faithfulness. Because the sacrifices were only an object lesson of what they truly should be doing. There is an innocent person slain for what I've done wrong. That's the object lesson. There's no power in the sacrifice. The sacrifice only teaches us that we need to have a substitutionary atonement. Somebody needs to die in our place. But I need to... You can sacrifice all day long, but if you don't repent, it means nothing. They thought, okay, we killed that lamb, we killed that goat or whatever. I'm all right. I can go on. And God says, I, I, don't, I don't like that. In fact, you're buying me, is what God's saying. You're buying my affection. Because you're thinking that if you offer something to me, I'm just going to go, okay, everything's good. And you do that. But actually, Jesus was telling his own generation that he didn't come to call the righteous. Remember, quoting from this, they thought they were righteous in what they did as a sacrifice. But a sinner would say, ah. Oh, but I've broken God's law. I've actually messed up. And it says, I desire that in that sacrifice. God would desire repentance more than a perfect church attendance. Isn't that amazing? God would desire devotion more, and probably, and I'd say more better, better than you singing hymns. A true devotion than a great voice to sing a true obedience rather than church attendance. Not that you shouldn't come to church where you get refreshed and strengthened and encouraged, right? But if that's what you're looking for as a way to say, God, I've been, I've been, I've been offering this, and we've been so disobedient in all aspects of life, then God says, you're trying to use it to buy me off. And you see how it goes together. Loyalty and knowledge. You see that it's a chiastic sort of scripture. This all over in Hosea. Loyalty goes with knowledge. Sacrifice goes with burnt offerings. He doesn't want burnt offerings. He doesn't want sacrifices. Not that they're bad, but he would rather have loyalty and he would rather have intimacy. Then those burnt offerings and those sacrifices fit. That's how God looks at it. Nothing wrong with singing. 
songs to God, I sing to the Lord, to the Lord all the time. Right? Nothing wrong with it. But if they're not really meant with devotion and obedience, then it really doesn't matter what I sing. And that's what God wants. Not that they're bad. He would rather us act on what we hear today. You know, God has nothing wrong with Bible studies, but if the Bible studies are not causing you to act and behave based on what you learned, then it really doesn't matter if you went to a Bible, or 10 Bible studies this week. God desires true devotion, passion, and obedience more than just attending Bible studies. It is much better to obey the Lord and what you know and learn than trying to go all these 15 different Bible studies all week. Don't give me gifts, God said. <laughs> Instead, give me faithfulness, loyalty, knowledge, intimacy, right? Paul went on to say to the Corinthians, he says, I didn't come to get the gifts from you. I didn't want the gifts. I want you. That's what the, that's what the important thing is. The Corinthians were trying to give them, you know, they were you know, a pretty wealthy church at the time trying to give something for, uh, for Paul to come. Paul says, I didn't come for the gifts. I came for you. I want you, not the gifts. Nothing's wrong with the gifts if it's got the right heart behind it. Now, verse 7 through 11, very difficult passage to explain and to translate. But this is the extent of Israel's sin. And we're going to get to the failure of the priest. And it's pretty sad if you, if you read it together. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. They have dealt treacherously against me. Now, this is interesting because there is a city named Adam, but there is a person named Adam. So commentators are going, is he referring to a place or a person? He says, there they have dealt treacherously against me. So it's definitely a place. But is he referring to this obscure city in, near the Dead Sea? That's where it is, according to Joshua 3. It only appears one time in the Bible. So... Is that what he's referring to, or twice now? No, he's referring to both in this way. The way they would have understood it then was that they would have known that there's a city, but that city would have reminded them of the biggest covenant breaker, or you could say the biggest sinner <laughs> that we know today. When we think of Adam and Eve, right? When we think of a transgressor, the Bible says it was Adam. Adam transgressed. Eve was deceived. Think of one person that was so disloyal to God, even though he knew God and had intimacy with him, was Adam. So much so that Paul uses Adam in his letters to the Corinthians and the letter to the Romans about the first Adam. Adam sinned. Adam transgressed. Here the prophet's bringing that up. He's saying, just like Adam, you did the same thing. Knowledge of God, closeness with God, proximity and fellowship with God, doesn't matter. He's going to do what he's going to do. And there was a city named Adam, by the way, and there was probably some horrible things going on in that place. And that's what Hosea is bringing up. Just like Adam, they're doing the same thing in Adam, that city. So he's using, it's a very common Hebrew thing, where you use the name of a city to remind them of a, a figure in the past. So when they heard Adam, they would have gone, oh, yeah. If they cared at all, at all, it would have reminded them of the first transgressor. Are you saying that that's us? That's right. That's you. 
And it says, they have dealt treacherously against me, just like Adam did. Verse 8, Gilead is a city of wrongdoers, tracked down with bloody footprints, footprints and as raiders wait for a, uh, for a man, so a band of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they have committed crime in the house uh, uh, in the house of Israel, I have seen horrible things. Ephraim's harlotry is there. Israel's defiled itself. Also, Judah, there's a harvest appointed for you. I'll stop right there, because the next verse actually belongs to chapter 7. You can draw a line there. Remember, chapter division is not inspired. These are just guidelines of where verses are. Gilead, Shechem. Gilead and Shechem were actually very interesting cities. If you know the history as Joshua was going into the land, Joshua were, um, actually took, took that land, and he was very uh, successful in his campaign. Uh, and when he got to Gilead and when he got to Shechem, there were actually cities that had been before Joshua. The patriarchs were there. And Jacob is the one guy that dealt with Gilead the most. Jacob, Isaac's son, Abraham's grandson, um, this is where he met Laban. He had the confrontation with Laban, his father-in-law. Remember, he gave him the daughter, the other daughter, and he had to work seven years. So there was this, and he thought he stole from him, and so there was this big confrontation there. And in, in Gilead, there was this um, known to be this bloodshed that happened there at the time of the kings, second kings. And Jacob was there. Now, Jacob, right? What the prophet is going to do, and later on you'll see it, he's going to begin to now insert Jacob in there. Why would he insert Jacob in relation to the nation now that have dealt treacherously with God? What was Jacob known for? That's right. The seed, treacherous, tre dealing treacherously with God. He was a heel catcher. He did all these things. He was the unconverted, you said, the unconverted Jacob, remember, he changed his name to Israel. The nature of the, the, the people of Israel at the time was not like Jacob with God. It was Jacob without God. This is Genesis 31, before he wrestled with God in Mahanim. Before he met God, now you're behaving like your ancestor, before he met me. Israel was behaving just like his ancestor, Jacob, a treacherous man, a heel catcher without God. God had to take him, take his hip out, so he can now rely on the Lord. Now, Shechem was another city that was a beautiful city, but this is where all these things have begun to happen. These treacherous things have happened there. This is where Rehoboam was crowned king of the northern kingdom, totally against God's will. Shechem's terrible. And it says, abandoned priests have murder on the way to Shechem. Now, this is... It's going to have to take a little bit of thinking about this. But do you remember the story of uh, Jacob's sons? And they had this encounter with some people in Shechem. And the people in Shechem weren't so nice of a guy, so they had violated uh, Dinah, their sister. And so they went in. They said, ah, everything's all right. You guys can get married. And they said, well, circumcise everybody. Then you'll know that we're together. And then the next day, when the guys were sore, because, you know, not exactly the nicest thing to do, you know, pre-surgery days and no anesthesia. You're pretty much incapacitated for a while. They slaughter them. Simeon and Levi slaughter them. Bloodshed. And Jacob was hard against them. Even at his deathbed, 
Jacob still remember what they did and why they did it. It was an awful thing that they did, but who was there? Simeon and Levi at Shechem. Now it says here, the priest did it in Shechem. The descendants of the priest, or the priest came from Levi. He's trying to show us it's just like your forefather. You have committed murder. Now, they have done this. I mean, the priests were actually committing murder on, on the way to Shechem. This is awful. This is the priests. These are the pastors. These are the people of God that are supposed to lead people to God, not kill them. Oh, but we see people today, right? Pastors necessarily murdering people, but killing them spiritually, starving them, not giving them the, the food that God would have them give them. But there were also, these cities were cities of refuge. Uh, in Joshua chapter 20, we're told that the cities of refuge were places where people can go and they can take refuge from if they accidentally uh, did something wrong. And then there was, uh, like if, um, there's one occasion where a guy takes an axe and his axe falls off the, off the stick and it kills someone. And now his brother is going to come and take revenge. He can run to the cities of refuge. And the Levites actually ran the cities of refuge. And you could be forgiven and you could, be, you could take a, a refuge there and not feel the wrath of the... the, 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 the the avenger of blood. But now these cities have become not cities of refuge, cities of murder. They have actually destroyed people there. Horrible things, God says. There's a harvest appointed for you, it says. Oh, Judah, there's a harvest appointed for you. The, the Levites were terrible. Israel has been defiled, and there's a harvest coming. And it gets into chapter 7. Uh, we're just going to finish this because I'm going to take the first, first few verses of chapter um, 7. But in verse 11 of chapter 6, this is where you draw that line. Because the second half of chapter 11, or verse 11, is actually belongs to chapter 7. It says, when I restore the fortunes of my people. You see that? That actually is connected to the very next verse. When I would heal Israel. Okay. So the, the, the first part of chapter 11, and there's a harvest appointed for you. That idea is a, a judgment there's appointed. There's a harvest that's coming. They're going to reap what they sow. Draw a line. When I restore the fortunes of my people, when I will heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is uncovered in the evil deeds of Samaria, for they, have deal, they, for they deal falsely. The thief enters in in bandits right outside. And they do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. No, their deeds are all around me, that they are before my face. So the first verse here, which is the second half of verse 11 and, and, and chapter, one, uh, chapter 7, verse 1, is God wants to heal. The amazing thing about all this is that still God wants to heal them. <laughs> I would have got rid of them a long time ago. But then I would have got rid of myself a long time ago. He wants to heal them. He says, I'm going to restore the fortunes of Israel. I want to heal the iniquity of Ephraim. I want to heal them. I want to uncover them, the evil deeds of Samaria. I want to do this. You're dealing with the God that is willing to heal the backslider, that's welcoming those who have been away from God. Haven't we been away from God at one point? No show of hands. <laughs> And God welcomed you back. 
I wouldn't. I would have said, hit the door, buddy. <laughs> Keep going. God welcomed you. He says, I would heal them. I would bring them back. I would restore them, the fortunes of Israel. I would, and, and, and here's the funny part. It says, I would un I have to uncover the iniquity. See, when God restores us, he uncovers us. He uncovers what we've been hiding. God doesn't heal us without uncovering what we've been hiding. He doesn't just go, well, you know, you can keep that around. Didn't help you, but you know, you can keep it around. You know, so I'm going to uncover it. So you can expose it. Exposing it causes us to repent and see it and go, oh, no, I can't have this in my life. The other part that is interesting is God takes note of all sin. Look what it says. And they do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. So even though God is willing to restore them, remember, they're not, they're not coming back to the Lord right now. They're standing outside going, well, you know, we got sacrifices. Well, you know, it would be nice to come back to the Lord. He will heal us. If we return, he will bandage us. But we're going to continue to do all this stuff. We're going to continue to murder. We're going to continue to do our orgies and idolatry and all this stuff. We're going to continue to do all this stuff. Why? Because it feels good. It's nice. You know, I mean, the thing about idolatry and immorality is that it's pleasurable. It requires no commitment. You think about that? Idolatry requires no commitment whatsoever. You can just sin what you like, you know, don't like what you, you know, throw away what you don't like. God is a God who demands real faithfulness, real commitment. You know, in idolatry, you can have many gods. You can have anything you want. There's no do's and don'ts. You can have immorality. You have sexual activity. Nothing wrong. Men, women, animals, everything. It's pretty permissive. More of that next week. Um, but God says, I take note of all sin. And he says, they're, they don't know that their deeds are all around them and that they're before my face. And here's the perfect definition of ungodliness. Okay, Jude loves this word, ungodliness. Ungodliness, ungodly, ungodly deeds, ungodly men who are doing ungodly things in their ungodly ways and and, and Jude's not talking to people that are atheists. He's talking uh, to, about people that are atheists. He's talking to people that are in the church. Because ungodliness is never about the atheist. Ungodliness is always a people that have a knowledge of God. What ungodliness is, is number one, you don't care. You believe that God doesn't care what you do. And number two, you don't care or you don't think God will do anything about it. That's really ungodliness. Ungodliness is when you don't really care or you don't really think that God cares what you do and you don't really think God knows what you're doing. He doesn't really care about it. That's ungodliness. You know there's a God, but he doesn't care how you live. And he doesn't care. He's not going to deal with you. He's not going to, there's no consequences to your sin. That's real ungodliness. Now, an atheist doesn't have that because an atheist could care less. But somebody who has the knowledge of God and continues to sin and sin and sin and sin without any conviction, without anything like that, their idea of, God, of, basically, they're ungodly. They're saying, God doesn't care how I live. He's all right with me doing that. 
And secondly, there's no consequences to it. God doesn't care. And he's not going to do anything about it. And they had reached, it's, it's terrible when people reach that level because now they have turned over there in their minds that God really doesn't care how they live. And there's not going to be consequences to it. And they blinded themselves. That's what they did. It actually says they don't remember all, uh, they don't consider in their hearts that I remember all their iniquity. No, their deeds are all around me. They're before my face. Next week we'll pick it up because God's going to use a series of pictures. They're going to be very vivid next week. A cake and an oven. That's how they, would, that's how they cooked them before, by the way. Um, uh, they used to cook them on grills, actually. And it's like a pancake. <laughs> He's turning over. And he says, Israel's like a pancake cooked on one side. It's like a man who has gray hair. And he doesn't think that he's getting old. No offense. He's like a silly dove who is always being deceived, doesn't know where to go, doesn't know what to do. And that's the leaders of Israel. It's like a, a cake that's burnt on one side and uncooked on the other side. What is it? Is it, an un, is it a burnt cake? Or is it an unburnt cake? <laughs> is it a raw cake or is it a burnt cake? Both, right? Kind of? That's what it, Israel didn't know what to do. They didn't know what to be. And the leaders were the ones who had the leaven. And he's going to talk about the leaven quite clear. He's going to talk about the leaven. That they didn't care that they had leaven. They didn't care. They just continued on. Pouring on the cakes, pouring on the cakes, uncooked cakes, and they kept going and going and going. And then verse 7 of chapter 7, we'll read that next week, it says, none of them called on me. None of them called on me. What a tragedy, isn't it? What a tragedy of people that had a real relationship with God. And this is the problem that we, in the church, when we read verses like this and chapters like this, we totally divorce it from ever happening to the church. We say, no, but it's different. It's the old covenant. And now we become neo-Martianites because we say, well, that is the God of the old covenant. He can't behave like that anymore. Have you ever read the book of Hebrews or the book of Jude or Revelation? Hopefully that's in your Bible. It's the same God. He's not a God to be trifled with. And people that behave like Israel will have the same consequences, whether they're in the church or not. That's the reality of it. Jesus said when he comes back, he will fight them with the words of his mouth, the sword that comes out of his mouth. He will fight against people like that. Can you imagine? God fighting against you? Hosea says, I've slain them with the words of my mouth that came out of the prophets. God wanted to restore them and revive them, but they were fighting against God. They wouldn't want to listen. And in Hosea, it's a tragic idea that people that were actually redeemed by God, they had a knowledge of God. They forsook it, they took it off, and they said, well, we don't want to know God anymore. We're satisfied with church attendance and satisfied with churchianity as we know it. They're satisfied with that. But they didn't want to know an intimacy and fellowship with God. And so there they went. Sorry to say, that generation did not repent. They were taken into captivity. Now, Judah had some good kings, praise the Lord. 
took a while for them to get to that level. But God wanted to spare them from all that. So to a people of the New Testament, Jesus said, repent. Come back. Don't leave your first love. Come back and do the first works. Restore that relationship that you had with them. That's God's heart for people. Repentance is the key. It's the hinge that makes it work. If we superficially come back to God, no good. If it's just rituals that we do, no good. If it's a heartfelt, compa uh, passionate love and devotion to God, that's what he wants. He wants that more than anything because he cares and loves individuals. Cares for the nation, but the nation is made up of individuals as well.